There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Make podcasts great again. Strike up the band! half-life of these individual slogans is reducing. Because I don't think there's anything that the Liberal Democrats stand for that you couldn't have as an opinion and be in the shadow cabinet. Well yeah. spotted, Danny. Uh, well, Thank you. Good. Yes, here we are again then. It's How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. I'm Matt Cholley, joined in the studio by new Labour mastermind Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, Policy McKenzie, Nick Clegg's former brain, and Tory brain box Daniel Finkelstein. How are we all? Very well, thank you, Matt. How are you? Very, very tip well. top, tip top. I'm just, I've, just, I've, um, I've got a uh, cup of tea in my Andrew Bridgen mug. Oh, great. <laughs> I think of, of all the jokes, because of his potato business, calling him Spud You Don't Like. Spud You the, Hate. Yeah, Spud yeah. You Hate. Spud You Hate, yeah. It was... Um, you think that might be the pinnacle of my I career? I think that was the pinnacle <laughs> of my <career. laughs> Terrific. Uh, terrific. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, don't forget you can email us howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, howtowin at thetimes.co.uk, and we'll do some of your uh, questions a bit later on. Uh, uh, we're going to take a look at some uh, by-elections, because there's two more on the way. They just keep on coming, uh, and at least another one uh, to follow. But um, I want to talk about uh, an election... With, well, first of all, we should, we should talk about Taiwan, Polly. You were, you were correct to point our, our our minds on the first big election of the year? Yeah, so the, the DPP, which was the previously uh, ruling party, has won with a plurality, 40% of the vote, uh, which means that there will be a, a new president, Lai, he's currently the vice president, um, in May. They are the party who are most... Uh, Western aligned, as it were. So it's it's probably n- not great news for Beijing, um, who would like to see you know clearer alignment. And specifically said, you know, China was was explicit in saying, "Don't vote for this guy." Yeah, then they, they, they believe that Taiwan belongs to uh, China, um, and and so the, the I mean, Peter. Last time we talked about this, Peter made the point that from a kind of global peace perspective, maintaining this slightly awkward status quo is what we is what we would like it it doesn't feel like a recipe for immediate escalation mm. of tensions but equally it it's it remains quite a tricky relationship there i think it's quite a good result because um he, mr lai is one Uh, So that sends a strong message to Beijing, sort of hands off. But he hasn't actually done that well. I mean, you say he has a plurality of votes. 
um, he uh, does not have a, a majority. No, uh, only 40%. He, he, he has to uh, govern with others. Uh, and this will constrain him somewhat, and I think that's a healthy outcome. Yeah, yeah, so in terms of... Well, it's good, with everything else that's going on in the world... That not becoming a flashpoint is a we, we can chalk that up as a, as a win. What about what's happening in America? Donald Trump overnight uh, winning by a landslide in Iowa in the the first contest in the race to become the Republican uh, nominee. It, Danny, can you see any way where this isn't a Biden Trump rematch? It's looking very much like that. Look, um, you know, one of the things I I would say is I, I, I'm not an actuary, so and they're both very old. So who knows whether or not. <laughs> Uh, they'll, they'll fight with each other. So you'd be make, you know, and that is one of the few things that can... Literally a fight to the finish. <laughs> exactly. I think that's one of the few things that can de- derail this contest now. But, it, you know, and people should take it... So I had a lot of people, after I, at Christmas, I wrote that I thought the, the prospect of Donald Trump as the next president was one of the big issues for the world in the in the next 12 months and lots of people wrote to me saying don't be ridiculous he can't possibly be elected and you know he's looking very strong to be the republican candidate and if you are the republican candidate in a year where there's a democrat president you most certainly can be elected so nobody who listens to this should think to themselves because of all the court cases, because they think Donald Trump isn't all there, or because of the things that he said he cannot win. He absolutely, what this result showed last night, for all the speculation about, you know, potential surge for Nikki Haley and that sort of thing, he he, he won uh, comfortably and... Um, you know, the weather and all these other minor factors. I haven't put people off uh, because he's very strong with the Republicans he is, and Republicans will turn out to vote for them, vote for him at least partly because they don't want the Democrats in uh, in lots of different ways. Um, and we should take very seriously the idea that he could be re-elected. We actually asked uh, YouGov to ask British voters who they would rather see win the US election. 18% said Donald Trump, 56% said Joe Biden. But interestingly, support for Donald Trump was highest amongst uh, Tory voters in 2019, 28% of those. Leave voters, the same, so more than a quarter. Almost a quarter of men, uh, so 23% of men wanted Donald Trump, only 12% of women. Interestingly, it was marginally higher in terms of support for Donald Trump amongst 18 to 24-year-olds. And then it sort of gradually went down to the age, in the age groups, down to 15% amongst the over 65. So it's an interesting thing about uh, young voters, which is, you know, interesting for all other elections. Though it's true that young voters can be more the most left-wing group, they can also be the most right-wing group. So the group in the United States that was the most in favour of the Vietnam War throughout, including when the Vietnam War became impossible, uh, impossibly difficult later, was were young people. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why big civil wars happen mainly in countries which have large proportions of young men in them, that, that figure that you've I, given. I think this is because a lot of young people just do not want to vote for politicians who seem to be have come from central casting. I mean, it's why I think a lot of young people supported Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. He was a sort of anti-politician politician. And the same goes for Trump. I mean, I was listening to some of his supporters on the radio this morning, you know, crowing over his victory. Why do, why do they think he's so wonderful? Because he's not a politician, they said. He's sent by God, you know, whatever. But, you know, he, he's, he's, not a, he's not central casting. And people are fed up with sort of identikit. Uh, politicians, and that's why I think many young people turn to people like that. There is also more broadly research about the enthusiasm for democracy over over dictators or people. You know, the, the, the younger people seem less enthusiastic about the concept of democracy. I think it's a, another reminder of how fragile uh, mm. democracy is. Of of things that were 
taken for granted. People always have a go at Francis Fukuyama for writing a book about the end of history. Um, I used to run a think tank, Demos, and, and we actually uh, published a paper called The End of Politics as well around that time. Wow. The sort of sense that, that liberal democracy had won and everything was going to be fine. And really, it was just sort of a tidying up exercise for the rest of the world. That nothing was uh, in contention anymore. You yeah, didn't need to contest you know, Tony Blair. Tony Blair solved the problem between left and right politics and come up with a third way and uh, everything was going to be fine. I mean, that's just arrogant nonsense, isn't it? Oh, Which we can all... It wasn't fine. I'm not, I'm say, <laughs> I'm not trying to be get... mean about Tony Blair on this occasion, so don't worry. Um, but, everything you know, got better. Trump, Trump <laughs> is, a, is a threat to democracy um, and he is a threat to uh, global... Uh, stability, you know, who knows what he would do with respect to support for Ukraine? Who knows what he would do with support for Israel? Might be more, might be less. Who knows? Who knows how he would behave with Taiwan and uh, well, what he with would North do for Korea? China? You know, I think Trump's We've, perfectly capable of saying, you know, Xi Jinping. Well, you know, I can get along with him. He's a bit like me, sort of economic nationalist, populist, authoritarian <laughs> politician with you know with those tendencies. I can do business with him. He might say, rather than go the to war with The him. real Who danger, in, uh, I think, in Trump is whether or not he's more focused uh, this time. First of all, he's obviously more seized of the idea that the system is opposed to him and is corrupt and crooked mm-hmm. in various different ways. But secondly, uh, last time, you know, his, his impact was fortunately blunted by the fact that he kept on sacking, you know, he sacked people all the time and, um, and therefore never had any continuity of anything that he was doing. If he were more focused, um, he could be more dangerous. Mm. Uh, that, but I, I think you're right, both of you, that young people are less struck by um, the benefits of democracy for all sorts of reasons, one of which obviously is that liberal capitalism hasn't worked for them in the same way that it has worked for other generations. But it's also because, uh, I'm sure all three of us have this experience, you are more certain you're right uh, when you're younger. And as you grow older, you do get a bit of perception that there are other opinions. You become a little bit more open to pluralism. I think that is definitely but an it's, explanation. It's, I mean, it's neurobiological, right? Like younger people's brains work differently. Their neurons fire differently. Fortunately, we're all terribly old here. Uh, so, <laughs> but it's, it, it's we right. We haven't got any new ones left. Young people, they have a, a different, um, what's called discount rate. Like, how much do you value uh, gains that you will make 5, 10, 15 years from now? Um, you just value them differently than you do when you are older. Mm. And that's why young people save less for their retirement than mm. middle-aged people. So it's just your, your approach to things. Uh, Peter, on the uh, on how to win last week, you talked about the impact you thought that Trump's campaign and uh, popularity and approach and style might influence the Tory campaign. And clearly, of course, of their voters would like to see him back. That might be a bit of that. But what about Keir Starmer? What does he have to do? Does he... It was notable both Keir Starmer and David Lammy at the weekend, being very careful not to go sort of studs up on on Trump because they know that come the end of the year, or early next year, they might have to be working with him. Yes, by the end of this year, uh, you may have Prime Minister Starmer having to do business with President Trump. So, of course, he's not going to go studs up at this stage. I mean, he would be very ill-advised, as would David, David Lammy, you know, to start sort of expressing personal views uh, about uh, Trump. I mean, in the context of Israel and Gaza, similarly, by the end of this year, if Netanyahu is still in charge in Israel, you may have, a, if he's elected, a Prime Minister Starmer having to do business with Netanyahu. You know, don't speak ill of people you're going to have to sort of deal with and treat with uh, if, you're, if the opportunity... 
can I ask opens you up. Can I ask you how how easy or difficult is is that within the Labour coalition? So, mm. Rishi Sunak, in my view, will have a problem as the election comes closer because of the American election going on at the same time. Donald Trump is making populist noises. It may be even attractive. There is this twenty eight percent you talked about who will think Rishi Sunak is not achieving what he could because he's not doing what Donald Trump. In other words, he'll be pulled in that direction. How easy is the position you're recommending, which I, you know, I obviously I agree with. It's difficult enough for, for Keir Starmer to take up. It's difficult enough for Theresa May, to be honest, to have that thing where she went to see Donald Trump and there was that famous incident of him grasping her hand as he went down the stairs, or he went down the ramp, actually. Um, so how easy is it? Like, what, what's your assessment? Do you think that he'd face really quite a lot of difficulty no. cooperating with President Trump from the left, from the centre to the left of the party? Well, that's a, yeah. So it's not a question of what you say before you become Prime Minister or have to deal with mm-hmm, him. It's what mm-hmm. you do yes. if you're in office. Um, I think he will uh, come under pressure, but at the same time, people know that uh, there is a national interest, there's a British interest. The United States is our uh, key global ally. Uh, we have, for the time being, God knows how long it will last under President Trump, you know, a very important security guarantee uh, given to us uh, through NATO by the United States. Um, but there will be Ukraine, Israel, there may be other uh, global hotspots where um, we're, we're having to take a view and we find Trump's approach really troublesome, I mean, really difficult. Um, so he'll have to navigate his way uh, through that. I mean, you, last week, Danny, you, I thought you rather poured scorn on me for saying that having a campaign running at the same time, Trump and Sunak wouldn't be that brilliant for, for Sunak. I mean, no. I, still, I still think... No, no, I, said, I, 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 I would never pour scorn on you. That's the first point to be to establish. <laughs> secondly, I, I wrote this, I mean, I wrote over Christmas that it will be a problem, that it, is a, it will be a problem. I, I don't think any of these things, by the way, are election-determining issues. It's, why, it's just they're the way, awkward. It's why, by the way, I'm not sure that November the 14th is such an ideal election date. Uh, for Rishi to choose because his entire campaign will be running alongside and be sort of completely almost sort of uh, sort of overlap with uh, uh, yes. Trump's, and the whole the whole media sort of maelstrom is going and, to. And as we've seen, you know, when when you've got your Lee Addisons and all that out saying, you know, it's been more choppy, more choppy. That seems to be working. Than it I mean, if I if I was Sunak and it was going yeah. to go for an autumn election, I think I'd prefer to go in October rather mm. than November for that. Sure, but it, other but, it, but it does that pose <laughs> it, because the issue of the American alliance is so essential to our defence, and William Hague is very good on this arguing talk going about Taiwan, Taiwan yeah, for example. Uh, this morning and Yemen, because it's so critical. Anybody who is serious about becoming prime minister uh, will face big questions about it, and those questions will be will rise in the in the six months. I don't think this is going to be an election outcome determining election, but and it certainly puts questions for for Sunak, but it'll also put some questions but, for yeah. Starmer as well. It, it's also, it I mean, the great risk though, as you say, America is central to our defence, our security, in all the ways that you've articulated. But the the risk is that under Trump, at some point, that stops being mm. as true. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, actually, Polly. we need we we will need to find ways to realign and seek security yeah. with our friends and neighbours in Europe but in a, but in a different way. Than that. 
because I think whoever is president, to a greater or lesser extent, we are going to be, have, be able to depend on the United States less somewhat less and less, less, and yeah, less yeah. Uh, for our security and defence yeah, yeah, yeah. because of the way the United States is going. We are going to have to step up, we in Europe and Britain. Yes. We're going to step up, do more, and look, <coughs> our, look after ourselves uh, in ways that we haven't really imagined ourselves doing since the Second World War. Uh, uh, clearly, you know, the global security, the future of who's in the White House, all very important matters. But more importantly, Danny, uh, it's been a week now. Ed Davey hasn't taken your advice. <laughs> he hasn't. And it's interesting. Uh, you know, my advice... Difficult he should, you difficult suggested he should li- resign last yeah, week. My advice is obviously influenced by something Liberal Democrats don't agree with, which is that I think intrinsically the position that he is uh, inhabiting, being leader of the Liberal Democrats, isn't as valuable as he thinks it is. Because I think that while liberal democracy is important, it could just as easily be in Labour. That was under that didn't underpin, and I understand why Liberal Democrats didn't like that. But it was actually meant as advice to them. I think <laughs> that I think that uh, they would be better off. Uh, with him having taken a very brave, big position on the post office, showing how Liberal Democrat values really uh, are implemented and put in practice, meanwhile allowing someone else to lead the party. I think the difference is marginal. I understand why he... I understand why <laughs> Give he it doesn't. time. There's still time. I, you know, I think... Because I think, like I think clock, how many days it's been. With I, all I, of these things... I, the big, I, I think it's... Danny said something also very important last week. Thank uh, you. Which is that barely anyone in the country's heard of it. Correct. Yeah. And they've rot. I mean, OK, they will have clocked this, but whether it makes a seismic difference no, no, to their judgment and, and, of him, I think is a different question. And crucially, it accepts the premise of the issue that there is one person to blame. This is a structural failing for all parties, for the whole of the state and actually Ed Davey, if he did that, would be playing into the hands of the Conservative Party and Labour Party, who have both tried to say that it wasn't them. Yeah. No, no, I think he. Well, I think we want to hang on to listeners. I just want to it say, this. I think he could argue. I think <laughs> yes, if you resign, he could, he could make exactly that point, but with greater I'm power. For, time on for Ed three Davis. seconds, stop talking about Ed Davies. <laughs> disappeared from the airwaves river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Nonsense. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about one of Ed Davies' uh, subjects. He's, he's happy to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about by-elections next. We've got two, at least two, possibly three, coming down the track. Uh, how do you win one and what difference does it make? We'll do that next on How to Win an Election. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's Matt Chorley with How to Win Election, joined by Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. Right, let's turn our attention to the uh, the main business of the week then. We want to talk about by-elections. We've got two by-elections definitely coming. One in Wellingborough, uh, following the recall of Peter Bone. One in Kingswood, uh, following the resignation of Chris Skidmore. They're both happening on February the 15th. And another one looms in Blackpool South, 
uh, where Scott Benton is currently the Conservative MP, but uh, he is facing suspension from Parliament following that Times investigation that he offered to uh, ask questions in response in return for money for the gambling industry. Uh, so if his suspension goes through, there's likely to be another recall petition, and it's like which. Uh, history suggests we'll trigger another one. We've already had 16 by-elections in this current parliament. Uh, Polly, they're a big... uh, The Lib Dems love them, don't they? Well, what's great about by-elections is they're massively different uh, sort of contests than a general election. Because the one obvious thing is that the future of the country is not at stake, which means you get a number of things. One, you tend to get much lower turnout. Um, You also can get much bigger swings... Um, And you can shift the political kind of mood in a place because it's so concentrated and people can safely sort of send a message to the government. Mm. And so whether it is about a local thing, you know, which might be some, uh, there's a field that somebody wants to build some houses on, which you can sort of turn into a into a, into a big issue, or whether it's uh, the Iraq war or a particular terrorism vote or uh, getting police on our streets, you can just turn it into a sort of single issue referendum on whether the government's any good. Um, and out of that, which is, not really a sort of... It, it's not in any way comparable to a general election, and yet it has meaning in the sort of SW1 bubble to the sort of the, the political parties, to their leaders, to their MPs and to the journalists, which means that out of this sort of weird thing, you can create momentum in the real thing. You can look like a victor, you can have cheering people, you can look happy, and, and it can change a narrative for good or ill about uh, whether you're winning and losing and also what kind of policies, what kind of things are, are winning and losing. We, we saw after the Uxbridge by-election, <laughs> which I think has sent the Conservatives even more mad, unfortunately, the, the, a belief that, oh, well, because in Uxbridge we held on to, the Conservatives held on to that because of the ULES, therefore we must turn ending the war on the motorist into our core election platform. Yeah, which shouldn't last very long. I mean, so my my, my um, view of them like is, all his strategies. Well, actual elections are, and like local elections, actually are important because they are about how people locally are governed or represented. So they're very important in themselves. But as indicators of national opinion, while they give you a taste of it, they're nowhere near as good as an opinion poll. I mean, you would never conduct an opinion poll by saying we're going to concentrate on one constituency, let everyone do an unfeasibly large amount of voter contact, um, pose them a completely different question, which is who do you want your MP to be your MP, rather than simply the question of who's going, who do you want to be Prime Minister, which is a different question. Um, and... Um, organise it at a completely different time to everything else, you'd get a terrible result, which is what you do. So so I don't think... By, we, we take them incredibly seriously and we think they're important. They're important in themselves. They're national elections that are worthy of covering because a Member of Parliament is important. But as indicators of national opinion except in the crudest way, you know, but if the crude way these by-elections, the crude piece of information these by-elections I can exclusively reveal are going to, uh, and on our podcast is going to uh, tell us, is the Tories aren't doing very well, which we already know. (laughs) Yeah, they may not be scientific, Danny, but they do do create momentum and they do have... Give me some examples, except... Darlington, Darlington, where Ozzie O'Brien beat Tony Cook uh, just near to the election, which may have stopped the SDP going past Labour in 1983. Uh, just because it had come well, after, I think, the... Gr- 
one other bike, maybe no, Greenwich. No, no, no. Bike. It, 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 so, Bermondsey was before it, which yeah, was yeah. a big nail in Michael Foote's coffin, uh, and Greenwich uh, was in February 1987. Yeah, later, later, uh, later. Where so it was that Bermondsey. really stymied so Labour's momentum. momentum. Give me an example. Going into the general election in, in, in that year. I don't so, believe it did. Oh, so well, I, believe me, I, I was but there. But if you look at poll, <laughs> look at poll. I, I just think it's over. So this is an important. I suppose argument. it's whether or not it's a cause and effect thing. Is this it is an a important debate? Of what's already happening? This is an important debate for our for our. Because so, earlier I was talking, we were talking about all sorts of different subjects, all of which either I think like the American elections, or indeed the question we were discussing with the Liberal Democrat leader. I'm not allowed to mention anymore in this program. Um, these don't affect the uh, the big results because very few things really do and i just think the impact of some Danny, by-election I'm not, I'm not saying that the labor would have won the general election of 1987 had it not been for greenwich that that february but i tell you what it did uh we were unfortunately faced with a selection of a quotes hard left quotes loony left candidate uh deirdre wood who was a great sort of living stone person and Kinnock's whole appeal that he had been created was that he had defeated the hard left, defeated militant, he'd turned around the Labour Party, and there was the <laughs> pops up, Deirdre Wood. And I remember what Neil said to me, he said, I'm afraid it's Deirdre, uh, Pete, do, do what you can in that by-election. Well, we did everything that we could and, and lost, and I'm afraid what it seemed to bring home to the public was actually... Labour still mired in hard leftery, uh, and it did do us damage. I mean, it 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 stopped. It arrested our the momentum we were building up to 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 that election. So the you know okay, as I say, it didn't determine the outcome of the general election, but it certainly affected us as a party. I think it's because of the impact that it has within the people who are hyper interested in politics. It it. People always in the kind of the commentary after a by election in the morning at three a.m. in the morning, they're always saying, "Oh, this proves what I already believed." Uh, <laughs> which, you know, you can always post hoc rationalise a by election, but but that means that organising factions within a party have new evidence for the thing they always believe. And so it can be very destabilising mm. to your campaigning, your coalition, your organising capability. And, and and that's why it has an effect. It's why it has such a mobilising effect for the Liberal Democrats, because plenty of people, such as Danny, believe they don't really have any reason to exist. But there's nothing like winning a by-election to make you feel like you do deserve to exist. And so that that means that at the next election or just whatever, the next week, yeah. more people delivering leaflets, more people being enthusiastic. And that ability to mobilise and enthuse, or on the other hand, yeah. kind of destabilise and, and drive factionalism, is incredibly, incredibly as important. A, as, a, as a receptacle for anti-Tory votes, by the way, of course the Liberal Democrats should exist. It's just a question of whether they need to be separate from Labour. Uh, I... I, I <laughs> You know, so that's the question. To be fair to Ed Davey. To be fair to Ed Davey. <laughs> Which is completely different um, to being fair to but, Ed But I, look, I just think, um, I very, very much doubt that data analysis would hold, would vindicate the idea. I think these things are noise, they're not signal. So um, I, I think what's going to drive the election is it's time for a change. Um, the Conservative yeah. Party has moved to a, is co having a coalition that doesn't suit lots of seats in the country that it holds. Uh, and this will demonstrate that, so we'll learn it anew. But we already, you know, 
a reasonable view yeah. of the political situation tells us this already. Uh, what I'm, are we going to learn from these by-elections that we don't know? Oh, about? Danny, I, but is, mm. is it also partly because we've had a lot of them and we can see the opinion polls are so stark. They're actually, this t- at this moment, they're having less, they're less useful. I was just sort of thinking about sort of David Cameron, to, you know, after Gordon Brown became uh, Prime Minister, 2007-2009, at various points, David Cameron got into trouble or whatever. And actually winning crew in Nantwich was the first big sort of notable electoral test after Gordon Brown's wobble. And the Tories took that off of Labour. And it showed that David Cameron could gain seats. But it was entirely obvious, right? I mean, we had the opinion... But then there were other ones he didn't win. If if you wanted to find out what people thought, you would conduct a survey. You wouldn't say, let's only ask the people of Crewe and language. But not everyone. You're missing something. There's a sort of political dynamic involved in all this, not just a sort of taking the temperature of the electorate or a scientific uh, uh, poll. Look, between 1992 and 1997, we had what I think something in the region of eight or nine uh, by-elections. The Conservatives lost each and every one of them. So it wasn't just noise, it was a signal that they were sort of in decline and possibly uh, uh, finished. But it also told the electorate that you can find the most viable anti-Tory a candidate and back them. So half those by-election uh, victories went to the Liberal Democrats, half of them went uh, to Labour. Tactical voting, in other words, became entrenched. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this Parliament since okay. 2019. We've had, a, what, about 10 by-elections yeah. uh, or, or so. They've almost entirely been won uh, by alternatives to the Conservatives, not all of them. Hartlepool was an exception. Mm. And I can tell you, Hartlepool, by the way, had a very major strategic impact on Labour. And I can come back to that. But tactical voting is becoming more entrenched, more habitual amongst voters. And uh, by-elections sort of tell you, how, you know, they school you in the art and <laughs> of, of tactical voting. Think about Hartlepool by-election. I mean, Polly very rightly pointed to Uxbridge and its mm-hmm. significance on the Tories and Tory strategy, short-lived as it was, the the loss by Labour of Hartlepool in 2020... 2021. 2021. May, yeah. ...was really significant for <clears throat> Labour. It, it was a shock. It shook up Keir Starmer and his entire team. If you remember, the conclusion he drew from it was that he had to really shake up in quite a ruthless way his top team. It affected his deputy leader. That's when he carried out a ruthless reshuffle and accidentally gave Angela Rayner five job titles. Yes, but it did did remove uh, Angela from a crucial role, which was chair of the party. But even more significant than that, it, it, it changed sort of Annalise Dodds from Shadow Chancellor to Rachel Reeves. And if you don't think that wasn't yeah. the most significant you know, personnel change that we've seen during this parliament, I'd like to know uh, what it is. It also led to him shaking up his own sort of personal team. It led in, in time to uh, Morgan McSweeney, his tough, you know, ruthless operator becoming campaign director. It really had a big impact, uh, did Hartlepool, uh, just as in a more short-lived way Uxbridge had for the Tories. The reality is that not everybody in politics is as clever or as analytical as Danny. And and again, humans are weird, right? We don't all learn in a sort of strategic and rational kinds of way. Lots of us humans, but people in politics as well, learn 
in different way. They learn through experience. And there's something about uh, an election decision which which can crystallise, which can become a sort of focal moment where something that was, of course, obvious in the data, if you thought about it properly, becomes so obviously true that it changes minds. Uh, and you wake up with a sudden dawning realisation. And, and th- that's because we're humans. It's because we exist in narratives and not always in data. There's also a practical element, isn't it? In a general election year, all the parties will be using different slogans, leaflet design, door-knocking strategies. By-election to dry They're runs dress for rehearsals, all these yeah. They're dry, yeah. dress rehearsals. I mean, no, so in that way, obviously, they do, they do matter. And I can, un- I can understand the impact on internal narratives. So if Labour, if, if Keir Starmer had not picked before Hartlepool the, up the message that he was caught between a number of different messages and had selected people designed to give people little clue of where he stood and he had to choose, then I'm, you know, I'm amazed that he hadn't. Um, and maybe it did have an impact yeah. upon but him. But maybe he but, knew and couldn't pull it off because yeah. not enough that's other people knew. Okay. Right? That's the point a very, very, very good point. Very good, very good point. Yeah. But also it okay. changed Keir Starmer in this way, uh, Danny. He had been a unity first man before Hartlepool. And, you know, let's all be friends. And, yes, I've replaced uh, Jeremy Corbyn, but he's still there in the party. I tell you, what Hartlepool brought home to Starmer and everyone else was that how that sort of Corbyn long shadow, long Corbyn was sort of cast over would-be Labour voters and that that was not sustainable. And when you had all the uh, anti-Semitism stuff and the, you know, report that was unveiled, from that flowed a judgment that Labour would not recover amongst, you know, former and would-be Labour voters unless we dealt much more decisively with Jeremy Corbyn. And that also flowed from the Hartlepool by-election. Okay, I thought it was obvious, but uh, you know, I think <laughs> that, that was also entirely obvious. If, if the, we do have three more by-elections, if Rishi Sunak loses them all, and they're all in sort of different sorts of seats, yeah, he will lose them all. Yeah, rural, yeah. you know, market town, coastal area. Doesn't that just create even more instability amongst well, his? Of course, MPs? But I mean, it, and loss of authority yeah. for Rishi. Might be wrongly. If you, M- you, some Tory MPs will be even more fretful. Well, they will use it as a reason to do it. But I mean, if you think, if you're, if you think that removing or attacking Rishi Sunak will help the Conservative Party win or do better at the next general election, neither of which I do think, then obviously you'll use this... Uh, yeah. To, but you have enough evidence already that that's Look, exactly the, what's going to happen. The truth is that by-elections can have major personal consequences. As I know from my personal experience, I literally was made... My whole political career was launched and made in the Brecon and Radnor by-election in 1985. I volunteered for my role as a TV producer on Weekend World and went to be the candidate's aide, and there I was spotted. And I was two months later catapulted into my position. Uh, from Brecon to Southwark, I joined the Labour Party headquarters in Walworth Road and became its director of campaigns and communications. And then the following year, at the Nosley North by-election, this ridiculous story about me and Mushy Peas uh, <laughs> uh, was, was born. If you remember, people said that when I was seeking the selection in Hartlepool, I went into a Hartlepool fish and chip shop uh, and mistook uh, Mushy Peas for guacamole. I mean, you know, as if me, as if I... You know. And that, of course, was a completely apocryphal story. Yeah. It was, in fact, an American intern in the Nosley North 
by-election in 1986 who went into a fish and chip shop and asked for the guacamole. <laughs> and for some reason, which I've never <laughs> since been able to understand... It seems so out of character. They just thought that that was a story that just fitted so perfectly with me. Um, uh, and it's been attached <laughs> to me like a legend ever since. We should point out, Peter, that you were so successful in Breckett and Radner, it was a Conservative seat then won by the Liberals. Yeah, but <laughs> it was one. Of, no, 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 no. Come and it was on, that sort of winning streak. It that was, Neil Kinnock thought was, he's the man I want. It was one of those brilliant uh, by-election campaigns when we sort of shook the tree through the strength of our campaign, but the apples fell into the Liberal Democrat basket. <laughs> right, very good, very good. Very caring, sharing approach to politics. Uh, very good. Right, enough questions from me. Let's do some questions that have been emailed in. Kieran has emailed in to How to Win at the Times. Listening through the podcast has been insightful and I hope someone could answer a question he said when following American elections there seems a media emphasis on core states where elections can be won or lost which then serve as a political battleground during those elections looking forward to our towards our own election could the cast identify any core constituencies which could serve a similar purpose what's the sort of seat for us to keep an eye on would Hartlepool be one, Peter? Hartlepool is... Yes, Hartlepool is important uh, because it's a so-called red wall seat that we had until the by-election in 2021 held since, you know, 1959. But if, for the wider uh, implication, wider lesson of this is this, very clearly. The challenge that Keir Starmer faces now is completely different from the one that Tony Blair faced in 1997. In 1997, basically, Labour held most almost all its sort of core heartland constituencies. We had sort of rebuilt in successive general elections and by the time we got to 1997, Tony Blair was sort of adding the sort of painting and decorating hmm. uh, to the heavy lifting that actually had already been done by uh, Neil Kinnock. This time, Keir Starmer, we've got to do two things. We've not only got to win back those sort of swing constituencies, you know, which with all those sort of, you know, centrists would be possibly Tory voters who we've got to appeal to. We've got to extend our reach uh, to those sort of marginal swing constituencies. But we've also got to regain all those heartland constituencies like Hartlepool uh, that we lost in 2019. So it's a sort of double whammy, a double uh, task that uh, Keir Starmer faces, which is why he's facing a much bigger so, challenge now than we faced in 1997. To look at the, in the right place, don't just look at the marginals. The marginals are going to go Labour or Liberal Democrat. Look much further up the beachhead. Um, and uh, that that would be my advice for the general election. So because I think that's where the where the battle is going to take place. So it's in seats where the Conservatives hold, you know, with with big with with relatively reasonable majorities of ten thousand or so. So actually, in fact, you know, there were a list of cabinet members with large majorities where there was a question mark over them because of the particular people who hold those. They'll hold public attention. Maybe they're good areas to, to comment on. I think if Labour is going to get a majority, they don't have to just take seats from the Conservatives. They actually also have to regain Scotland. They have to okay. make advances in Wales. Uh, and also, uh, th there's, a, there's a question of whether, whether those Lib Dem, Tory, more marginals, are those going to fall in numbers to the Liberal Democrats, which just sort of 
it, that's where you might get a real catastrophe for the Conservatives if, again, if they're not just losing to Labour, Correct. but they're losing they're losing everywhere. So, you know, Isha and Walton, uh, Dominic Robb's seat, is, is one where Liberal Democrats made substantial gains last time. Would they take that? You know, that would suggest that the Conservatives will be losing everywhere rather yeah. than just to Labour. Yeah. And just to give us a sense of the scale, there's been this new an- analysis out uh, this week on uh, the new boundaries and the seats and what they look like. Uh, if you get down to the top 50 targets of Labour, Darlington is one of them, is the number 50. You only need a swing of 5.36% to take that. But to get a majority is, what, 12%. So, you need, you know, there's a there's basically... That's a big swing, a total, by the way. Yeah, 5%. yeah, yeah. 5% is a big swing in normal big, big times. Labour has a huge mountain to climb. And on that note, uh, that was Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie, Daniel Finkelstein. I was Matt Chorley. That was How to Win an Election. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.